Hello, welcome everybody to today's podcast. I'm Scott. And this is Brad. And this is not about us. I want to thank everybody who's listening in. Uh, It really does mean a lot to Brad and I that you do that. And we are going to do our best to make it worth it for you. But as always, our best is never going to be good enough. So right now, we'd like to invite Yahweh God in to do his thing tonight. Yahweh God, we pray that you will come into this podcast and be the author and we will just be the tool, the mic. We pray and invite you here. We're excited to share you with our listeners and we hope that the Spirit will bring truth to this general Bible study today. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, today, I'm going to talk about a couple different things that are going to be integral to understanding a lot of what I'm going to talk about from here on out. Um, As we said in the introduction, I'm going to be doing Genesis. Brad is going to be doing Revelation. So actually, there are three things that I'm going to be talking about, but two of them kind of go together. But the first thing I want to talk about is the Hebrew alphabet, and specifically the fact that each Hebrew letter means so much more than just being a single letter in the alphabet. This blew my mind when I first started doing some studies with Scott. Oh, me too. I'm excited to share this with our listeners. Yeah. Now, before I do get started with all this, I want to say that I am not fluent in Hebrew. Brad, are you fluent? You know Hebrew? Sure. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) No, no, I am not. I, um, you've been hiding out on, you've been hiding (laughs) stuff from me. What's going on? I've been attempting to learn a little Hebrew doing the, the app thing, but no, by no means am I anywhere near professionally trained in Hebrew. But you are, uh, you did mention before, you do, you would like to. Have you gone any further with actually learning Hebrew? No more than just the app, but okay. it is been on my heart that, you know, Hebrew is God's language. And I would like to know the language that the Bible was written in. Right. So it is something that is on my heart. And when the timing's right, when God says, okay, you now have the time, I want you to go for it, I seriously will. Okay. So, so as you can see, Brad and I are not fluent speakers of Hebrew. We're on a journey of discovery the same as all of you. Now, I, like Brad, I've only been looking into this for a relatively short period of time, just a few years, and, and like Brad, it continues to blow my mind. I am constantly feeling like I'm just scratching the surface with this. The more I learn about it, the more I'm convinced that if we really, really want to dig deep into the incredible intricacies of God's Word, that one of the things we're going to have to do is study this text as best we can in the original Hebrew. Now, is this because Hebrew is superior to English or German or Japanese or Spanish or whatever? No, no, not at all. In fact, if I had the ability and and time, I would love to learn every language and study God's word in it. I believe that God knew every language before it was first spoken by anybody, and I believe there are treasures to be found in every language that can help you understand God. For example, uh, do, you, do you speak any other language, Brad? I do not. Okay, neither. I'm not fluent in any other language, but I have studied, simply because of curiosity, I've studied several languages, uh, Spanish being one of them, uh, and... In Spanish, you have the word soy, meaning I am. You also have the word estoy, which also means I am. Uh, So what's the difference? Why do you have two forms of the same thing? It's because the first usage, soy, has a connotation of permanence. 
The second usage, estoy, is intended to show a temporary situation, and I love the fact that this exists in Spanish. Uh, I'm a big fan of this. We don't have the same type of thing in English, but I would love to understand its applications in the scriptures. Where does this sense of permanence compare to the sense of I am being stated in just a temporary sense? Where do the scriptures use both? I think that could help us to understand God a little bit more. And I think the same type of thing applies in every language. But I do think it's important to understand Hebrew in particular. Uh, one of the reasons is because God himself chose to give us his original texts in Hebrew. And if there's one thing I've learned about God over the course of my life, it's that nothing is coincidental. If he did it, it's for a reason. Truth. So not only is the Hebrew version of the scriptures the original, and everything else is a translation or a transliteration, which can possibly alter the meaning somewhat, but Hebrew also has special qualities about it that other languages don't that allowed God to place a greater depth of meaning. So each Hebrew letter also represents a word or a word picture. It represents a number. It even represents a color. It represents a musical note. And as I was researching these, I found so many other things that it could represent. But right now I'm going to stop just there because I want to talk briefly about this musical note uh, before I move on to the word pictures. I discovered this aspect fairly recently, and it was something that just blew me away. You're not the only one, Scott. This is one of my favorite memories of our studies, is learning about this musical Hebrew note. So several months ago, I stumbled across this teaching online in which someone put the 23rd Psalm to music. And Brad has heard it. I wish I could show you the link, but it's gone. I can't find it. I don't know if they took the site down. I don't know what happened. Uh, but I would love to, to play this for you or, or show you to the link where someone else is playing it for you. But when I say they put the 23rd Psalm to music, I don't mean that they wrote music for the words to the 23rd Psalm. I mean they took the original Hebrew letters of the 23rd Psalm and played the music that it represented. And it was beautiful. It was emotional. It did everything that a psalm needed it to do. Absolutely amazing, the depths of Scripture. Yes, it was. It was awesome. It was eye-opening to realize that the entire Word of God is not just text, but beautiful music is incredibly breathtaking. Every, think about that. Every sentence in the Bible is a song. Uh, that speaks to the fact that God's design is not simply mathematically precise and an amazing feat of engineering, but it also speaks to the passionate, vibrant, emotionally charged depth of the Bible, of, of God. Uh, another thing I learned when I was researching this just the other day is that... Uh, Apparently, David had a special 22-stringed harp. Uh, that, and there are 22 letters in the, the Hebrew alphabet, so each string corresponded to a certain letter. Oh, okay, so you're just blowing my mind. That's new information I didn't have. Now, I've heard about David being a, uh, a creator of musical instruments, and so, yes, that makes a lot of sense to me. But the fact that there's even more to that, that he had an instrument that literally played Hebrew letters. Yeah. Wow. But I, um, I also, beyond that, beyond the fact that the entire Bible, if you think about it, is musical and can be interpreted as sheet music, if every Hebrew letter is a musical note, that means the reverse is also true. And... That floored me because it means every single musical note is saying something. We've just been blind to the translation. This means that music itself has language. 1 Samuel 16.23 says that when David played for King Saul, evil spirits would depart. And I used to wonder why. Why would the evil spirits just simply leave at harp music? 
And I've heard different people give different ideas about it, but it always felt hollow and it, it didn't, didn't really make sense. It felt like they were just fabricating something that was, you know, oh, maybe it was this, and, but there was never really a clear answer. But now I'm wondering, could it be that the musical notes that David was playing were inspired by the Holy Spirit and he was actually led to play music that was speaking a blessing uh, on the situation and a banishment to these evil spirits in a language that they understood? It's something to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely amazing. And it, and it makes so much sense. God is more than just the, the first surface level of the text. You know, he created all of this. And this is stuff that we can discover. And it kind of makes me sad to think that we've lost a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're not looking at these things through a Hebrew point of view. Now, with that being said, that, that in, in and of itself is mind-blowing. And I wanted to throw it out there as a small little mind bomb for you. You're welcome. <laughs> but uh, I want to get into the word pictures right now because it's going to be a major part of what I'm going to be talking about from now on. Uh, so as I said before, for those of you who don't know, each Hebrew letter also stands for words and numbers, which we're going to need to know in order to go deeper. I mentioned the numbers here again, which is very important, but I'm not going to touch on that right now. I just want to mention it because it's going to come up in future podcasts. But the word pictures... Now, every Hebrew letter has several meanings. This speaks of God's incredible intricacy and complexity of design, which we're going to get into here. I had in mind, I was going to cover several Hebrew words in this segment and break them all down to show you the word pictures behind them and how amazing it is. But as I was timing this podcast and rehearsing it, it began to go on forever. So we're going to see the breakdown of many more words as these podcasts go on. For time's sake, for right now, I'm just going to talk about one very special word that will allow you to really start to see this incredible word picture at work. And that is, you want to take a guess, Brad? (laughs) Putting me on the spot here. Um, What word I chose? I've got no good guess. Yahweh. Yahweh. (laughs) <laughs> the name of God. Okay, so just so you know, Yahweh or Jesus will always be the answer. I should have known that. <laughs> no, you're a little mistaken. Yeshua is Jesus. Correct. Yahweh is the name of, of God Almighty. And, and, and to take it back, okay, I, I'm getting sidetracked here. Yahweh, actually, Jesus is Yahweh too. That's another study. And uh, as I was rehearsing this, I was saying the name of God is another study in entirety by itself. I'm going to keep my blinders on. I'm not going to focus on any of that. Sorry. Uh, Forget everything we just said about that. We're going to stay on this word picture. Uh, Yahweh, the name of God. yod Hey vav Hey. And by the way, as I go on with these Hebrew letters and names and everything, I hope I'm pronouncing them correctly. I'm trying my best, but if if I'm screwing it up, I'm really sorry. Uh, yod Hey vav Hey Yahweh, the name of God. Yod. It means the word pictures behind this are arm and hand. Now, that's not two word pictures. That's, that's one word picture. Imagine from the shoulder to the fingertip, the arm and the hand, all one picture. Uh, it can also mean work. Uh, yod can also stand for deed. And in fact, these are English translations of the word pictures at play. So it's kind of a combination. It's all of these. This is kind of the best translation that we can get. But hey can stand for low, which in English represents look, see, draw attention to. Uh, Hey can also stand for behold. And hey can also stand for the English word the. Uh, As simple as that. Now, uh, hey is repeated twice in the name of Yahweh. Yod, hey, vav, hey. Uh, so it's repeated. It's going to be seen twice here. But vav, the word picture we get is nail. Uh, it also can represent peg. It can represent the word ad, as in addition, not short for advertisement. 
And it can also represent the English word and. So you can take any combination of these and they all work. They're all legitimate word picture interpretations, uh, which again speaks to Yahweh's incredible design in all of this. So in the name of Yahweh, one of the word pictures that we can get here that just jumps out at me is behold the hand, behold the nail. And that, that alone blew me away in all of this. But there's just an, an, a, a brief interpretation of what word pictures, how they can enhance the meaning and show God's design in all of this. So on that note, before I go on, I do want to say in my podcast, I'm going to try my best when I think I'm revealing truth to point out that it's not the only truth. And we've talked about this before in our introductory podcast. There's so many deep levels to truth. God is so intricate and perfect in his design, uh, which is what I'm about to get into in my next segment here. But I, I never want you to feel that I'm saying this is truth. That's it don't move on no this is one piece this goes back to digging deeper one of the major problems i see in uh, several teachings on the bible from people is that someone has legitimately found a piece of truth they found truth but then they stop there and they claim that's it uh, and they can even become antagonistic to other people who who they've found truth but they think no you can't be true i'm true not realizing that there's there's it goes so much deeper and there's so much more there's so many levels. I also think God will sometimes lay a personal truth on you that's only true for you. and if In you, your situation or what, yeah. Yeah, and if you hold on to that and try to say to the rest of the world, no, this is truth for everyone, well, it, it's not. It was meant just for you, for whatever you were going through or whatever new insight you needed in that moment. God knows. Yes. So, so... Too many people, I feel, are limiting God in this way instead of continuing to move on to deeper and deeper truths. And that's an emphasis I want to place on you, the listener. Don't limit God. Uh, we're going to get into this in a moment, but don't ever make the mistake of saying God is limited by my concepts. Now, if something is wrong, it's wrong. If the evidence claims it's wrong, it's wrong. That's one thing. But don't get into this uh, idea that God needs to fit into our little box. And this is difficult for me to say because I'm guilty of this too. But try to be open to other people's interpretations. If it doesn't sound right to you, okay. You don't have to believe it. But try to be open because when you're open, you might discover mm -hmm. more about the identity of God. So now the next thing I wanted to get into is the fact that God is perfect. Now, oh, by the way, before I start getting into scripture, because I'm about to start throwing scripture into all of this, I wanted to let you know that I use the HRV, which stands for the Hebraic Roots Version. Uh, so unless I specify another version, that's what I'm using. Uh, and I wanted to mention it now because from time to time I will use certain Hebrew words, names, and expressions that will need some explaining before I move on. When that happens, I'll stop I'll let you know what's going on, and then I'll keep going. But right now, we're going to get into an understanding of the perfection of God and why it's so important to grasp this. So Deuteronomy 32.4, the first part says, The rock, his work is perfect. Now, rock here is capitalized, which, of course, we know means that the Bible is saying this stands for Dwayne Johnson. So, <laughs> um, Correction. <laughs> Oh, no, no, that's not it. Um, no, the rock. It, it's capitalized because it stands for God. It stands for Yahweh God. So the rock, Yahweh God, the rock, his work is perfect. Second Samuel twenty-two thirty-one. the first part says, as for El, his way is perfect. Now, every other translation instead of El uses the word God. And this is correct because El and Eloah, in Hebrew literally means God. So this is a perfectly correct translation here. But Elohim, whenever you see that, literally translated is God's, plural. In Hebrew, when you end a word with the I-M ending, im, uh, it generally indicates 
that the word has become plural. Just like in English, when we end in S or ES, it usually, it, it can mean, uh, not with every word, but it can mean that we've pluralized the word. And that's what the IM uh, ending in Hebrew stands for. So Psalm 19.8. Now this is in the Hebraic Roots version. Uh, it's 19, Psalm 19.7, if you're looking this up in the King James Version or most other translations. It says, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The King James, instead of Torah, uses the word statutes. The NIV uses the word precepts. These are both correct, but Torah, it, the, the Hebraic Roots Version kept the word Torah because it means so much more and encompasses all of these ideas. It can mean law. It can mean uh, instructions. It can mean word. It can mean just the whole path and, and design of God. So there's so much more. The Torah, his, his very words, everything he's given us is perfect. So we have here in these verses, his work is perfect. His way is perfect. His word, his Torah is perfect. We tend to put a limitation on God based upon what we in our limited finite minds can comprehend. And we need to understand that God is perfect beyond our ability to comprehend. One of the things, when I was looking up and I was researching the Hebrew letters, uh, I came across a website called walkingkabbalah.com. You can check it out for yourself if you'd like. I didn't dig very deep into it, but it was talking about how each Hebrew letter also represents a spiritual meaning. And this is a quote from that website when talking about the letter Aleph, which is the first Hebrew letter. Quote, it is the one that cannot be divided, representing perfection beyond human comprehension, unquote. And that captures perfectly what I'm trying to describe here. If you ask a Christian, do you believe that God is perfect? You'll usually get a yes response. Uh, unfortunately, not always. But if you press a little harder with some of the examples of God's perfection, that what I've personally found is that many will balk at giving God credit for such perfection. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard about the Torah codes. They were a big thing a few years back, and uh, I even saw them on Oprah uh, and other shows uh, talking about this. They've been around for thousands of years, but only recently with the development of computers have we really gotten deep into these and been able to, to find more and more. But the Torah codes are an alphanumeric sequence in the Torah uh, that they, they give a deeper hidden picture in what's going on. Now, Brad, do you know about these? I, I believe you know. Yeah, we've looked into it just a little bit. So I have a basic understanding okay. of what they are. But for example, it'll be like if, if you start at this spot right here and take every 17th letter uh, or every 19th letter backwards or, or things like that, you can come up with different words and phrases that give specific information about different people and different events in Israel's and in the world's history. And it's, it's mind-blowing how, how deep and, and precise that these get. And the fact that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them, no other book in creation uh, can boast such a feat. Um, at most, there are, there are accidental references uh, in, in any other book that don't really mean anything. But one of the examples of this that I'm going to share with you right now in Genesis and Exodus, if you take every 50th letter from the first Tav, which is a Hebrew letter, the first letter of Torah, you take every 50th letter, it repeats Torah, 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 over and over, through Genesis into Exodus without breaking, all the way through, it repeats that word Torah. If you take Deuteronomy and Numbers, the fifth and the fourth books of the Bible, and you do the same thing, but go backwards. Every 50th letter backwards spells Torah, Torah. Uh, now, 
To be clear, I have heard some people say that at least in one of the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, it ends up being the every 49th letter. I don't know whether that's true or not. I just want to point it out there because it might be the 50th, it might be the 49th. But they're spelling the word Torah. Genesis through Exodus forward, Deuteronomy and Numbers backwards, so they're pointing towards Leviticus, the middle book. Now, you know about this that I'm talking about, Brad, do you? Or am I, am I mentioning this to you for the first time? No, no. This was a study that you and I talked about a That's while ago. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, now, in Leviticus, every seventh letter from the first Yod that you find spells yod Hey vav Hey Yahweh, the name of God, over and over again without break through the entire book. Now, 50 is the number of Jubilee, where everything is restored to its rightful place. Seven is the number that means resurrection. It means spiritual completeness. It means the Father's perfection. It's the number of Jesus. It's the number that represents Yeshua. So what we have is the Word of God. The Torah is pointing us to the place where everything is going to be restored once again to its rightful place. It's pointing us to Yahweh through Jesus. It's an amazing piece of perfection in the middle of that that cannot be duplicated by man. Absolutely not. It just These are the kind of things that I am excited to share with our listeners. These things have blown my mind, and then they still are blowing my mind. I learned about... I learned about some of this yeah. stuff years ago at this point, and I'm still contemplating it, that that book, the Bible, in and itself is so perfect, so beyond man. We, we could not have thought of this. Our minds are, are not perfected. Our minds are not capable of doing this. Now, that yeah, as, as Brad said, it's an obvious, it's obvious evidence that, There's the signature of God in this, that man could not do this, and yet I've met many people who call themselves Christians, who say they believe in the perfection of God, who their reaction to hearing this is uh, is along the lines of, yeah, right, whatever. Yeah, right, whatever. I evolved from a monkey. Yeah. (laughs) Now, why, why do they feel like this, even though they're claiming God is perfect? Because it's so impossibly complex and intricate that they can't conceive of it. And they think if they can't conceive of it, it can't be from God because they're limiting God to fit only into things that they themselves could attain to or understand. Because of their own arrogance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not... Um, We're not, not beyond this? <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm I'm just as arrogant. I, might, yeah. I still have many, many walls that need to be broke down. Mm-hmm. I still attempt to limit God even, even though I'm chasing that relationship. Yeah. And that's why I think I get overwhelmed and excited when I realize he's not who I think he is. He is so better, so much better. Yes. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that song, Praise the Lord from David Crowder that we mentioned in the introduction, please do it. It, it, it specifies this very thing. You know, he's, he's beyond, he's not who I think he was. Praise the Lord mm-hmm. that he's not who I think he was because he's so far beyond with the box that I limited him to. But now, if the evidence stands in contradiction to something, then we have to logically conclude that thing is in error. But I challenge you, if the logic, if the wisdom, if the evidence supports a thing, and the only argument you have against something is entirely based off an emotional incredulity, then you have to re-examine your argument. We need to understand Yahweh is far more perfect than we can possibly comprehend in order to move forward accurately and interpret Scripture correctly. Here's a couple of other cool examples I'm just going to throw at you uh, just because I think they're cool. Uh, And Brad knows about these. Uh, We've talked about this before, of God's perfection at work in His design. Uh, the names of the first men in the Bible from Adam to Noah are Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now those are their English translations. Um, I'm going to get into their Hebrew 
their original Hebrew names at a later date. But those are the first men of the Bible. Now, if you take these word pictures we talked about earlier, if you take the meanings of their names, uh, and again, some of the meanings, uh, possible interpretations of their names, you get man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God, he who descends, is dedicated. His death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. In the very names, in order of the lineage of Jesus, comes this message for us from God. That's, that blows me away. Those names are a testimony of Jesus. Yeah. And in the 12 sons of Israel... I say the 12 sons, not the 12 tribes, because the tribes changed. Uh, Levi became the priestly nation, and uh, Joseph was removed, and his two sons became two of the tribes. But these are the 12 sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. You look at the meanings behind their names, you can get, Behold, a son. Hear him and be joined. Give him praise. Judge his strife and his fortune. Happy and blessed am I. He brings reward. Dwelling with us, he shall add, for he is the son of my right hand. There's a message from God for us in just their names about his plan of redemption for us. Just amazing, absolutely amazing. So that's briefly on the perfection of God. Uh, and, and I hope you're getting blown away by this, even if you've heard this before. I hope it's just, just hitting you just how impressive and how awesome God is in at least a small way. But now, the next thing I want to get onto, which is going to go hand in hand with this, is the fact that God is timeless. We have to understand the timelessness of God. And again, go ask a Christian, do you believe God is eternal what, do you, what answer do you think you'll get usually, Brad? Is, is, is God eternal to a Christian? God to a Christian, it's hard for me seeking a relationship to remember what I thought. But, <laughs> but, well, even but, just a straight yes or no, do you think they I go, think they will say, I'm in agreement with that? I think they will say yes, but not necessarily knowing why. There you, know? there you go. No, I think you're right. Uh, I think most people will say yes, yes, God is eternal in kind of the same way they think we're eternal. If we're going to live forever, if we're going to go to heaven and live forever, they think God's going to go on forever. Yeah, yeah, of course God's eternal. But what I found when I dig deeper is that a lot of believers, I won't say most because it's just been my experience talking to people and I haven't talked with every person on the planet, uh, but they balk at the idea that he's truly eternal and that they think, a lot of people think God did have a starting point and that God does not have eternal past, or that he, that they'll balk at the fact that he exists outside of time, and in fact, time itself is his creation. He's not bound by it. That was truth that came to me, and I had a really hard time struggling with, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to try to figure out the fact that I sometimes get overwhelmed when I start thinking God thoughts, but he is outside of time. He created time, but he's also in every moment of time. He's, yes. He right now is being nailed to the cross, and he's at the victory. He's at the day of judgment. He's here with me right this moment. Yeah. He's been with me in every single moment of my life, including the moments I haven't even experienced yet. Mm -hmm. All of these kind of things, just when I really, really start to think about them, overwhelm me. Yes. We see, I, I do think that having a knowledge of time was a blessing. I think our, our meek minds wouldn't be able to comprehend in this realm, what it's like to not have time. Oh, exactly. You know, so I do believe that time is a blessing, but it is overwhelming mm -hmm. to imagine what it would be like to be outside of time. Yeah, because we are finite creatures. We're living in the timeline. It's, it's difficult for us to comprehend eternal past because we all had a beginning. There is a beginning to everything physically that we know. It's just we can't think of it uh, of eternal past, but we have to accept that God is beyond us again, and he's not limited to what we're limited to. Deuteronomy 33:27, the first part of that verse says, 
the eternal L is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now again, L just means God, so it's saying the eternal God is a dwelling place. The eternal L, eternal. Strong's Concordance, this is number 6924. Uh, you can look it up yourself if you'd like. The Hebrew word uh, can be, uh, it's spelled two different ways, and it can be pronounced kedem. It can also be pronounced kedma. And this word means, it can mean eternal, the way we think of it in English, eternal, just forever, eternity, eternal, going on without end. But it can also be used specifically to reference ancient times or used as an adverb to mean before. So specifically, this word can, be, can mean be, even before the ancient of times. It can also mean everlasting forward, specifically. Now think about this. I want to blow your mind, Brad. <laughs> Relatively speaking, this word represents east. Now think about that for a second. It represents east as a starting point. What starting point is east? If I say, Brad, go east until you hit the starting point, how long are you going to be going? I'm going to be going forever. I mean, think about that. That, that in and of forever. itself. Yeah. There's a concept of time without, uh, uh, of eternal past. Go east until you hit the starting point. There, there is none. Even if you say, well, you know, you're talking about circling the globe. I'm going to, I'm going to go in a straight line east. Okay, go right out there into outer space and keep going east until you hit a starting point. How far are you going to be going? Forever. Yeah, it's eternity. Absolutely forever. There's no beginning to east. Everlasting. The, the verse says, underneath are the everlasting arms. In Everla Strong's Concordance, it's number 5769, if you'd like to look it up yourself. Now, this can be spelled two different ways. However, they're both pronounced the same way. The word is olam. And this, the definition of this word is time out of mind, past or future. So think about that. In the very definition of the word, it means time that is beyond our comprehension. Time out of mind. So many times in the Bible, uh, this is one of the reasons we get a little confused with this because many times in the Bible, eternal or everlasting or similar words are used with a focus on us. Uh, we have been given eternal life. Uh, we have an everlasting covenant. Uh, we are an everlasting possession. The implication being we're discussing eternal future because we have a beginning. Um, I have eternal life, but I was born. Uh, November 26, 1970, I was birthed, and before that I was conceived at a certain point in time. And from now on, I have eternal life. So that tends to be the way we think about it because of who we are and our limitations. But when the Bible talks about God in this way, the eternal L, his ways are everlasting, the everlasting God, it always carries the full weight of eternal past as well as future. Once again, we have to go back to understanding we cannot limit God to things that only we can comprehend. We need to let God define God. And God defines himself as existing outside of time. Ephesians 3, 9, the very last part of it says, in Eloah, again, Eloah and El both mean God, so in Eloah, who created all things. Now the word things is in brackets. And what that means is the translators added it to the English language thinking that it would help our understanding. But the original Hebrew just says in Eloah, who created all. And they both relatively mean the same thing. We would, in, in our English way of thinking, we would add the word things to make it a little, more, a little easier to comprehend for us grammatically. But in Eloah who created all, he created all. This includes time. Uh, we, we tend to not think that way. We think of physical 
uh, you know, my table, my chairs, the floor, my house, my body. He created all. But time is included in the word all. It's part of everything that exists. God created all, and he exists outside and separate from his creation. Uh, He exists outside of time. If we get this, if we get that God is absolutely perfect beyond what we can can conceive of as perfect, and he exists outside of time, only by combining these two things can we begin to understand the scriptures. Now, why do I say that? Why does this matter? Why is it so important to grasp these concepts in order to properly uh, translate scripture? Because if we understand he is both absolutely perfect and he exists outside of time, that means that everything he has ever said is perfect and applies to everyone, everywhere, every when. When he spoke something, it was absolutely perfect and he spoke it outside of time, which means his words emanated throughout all of time concurrently. So when he spoke to Moses, when he spoke to Abraham, when he spoke to David, when he spoke to the apostle Paul, uh, he was speaking to all of us at that moment, every single one of us. We need to remove the barriers that our own limitations on God create. We need to understand that everything he has ever said applies perfectly to groups, to people, to nations, and to every single one of us. You wanted to blow my mind, and you've done it, Scott. (laughs) Everything in the Old Testament still stands, and everything still applies to us. Don't be one of those Christians that say the Old Testament's gone and done away with. Everything is perfect from God. And everything applies. Uh, that, that, should, that should blow your mind. It should weigh on you, the listener. God made the Bible specifically with you in mind. He loves you that much. You are his special creation. Everything was designed with you in mind. Let that overwhelm you for a moment here. The Almighty created all. Just absolutely stunning. Now, this creates a problem for us, though. Well, not a real problem, but an apparent problem. Because if everything in the Old Testament is perfect and everything still applies, then shouldn't I be doing it? Shouldn't I be doing it all? The way it says? The answer is yes, but not in the way you're thinking. So we got to move to something else too. We got we to combine. Uh, scripture, all of Scripture, is broken down into segments for us to more easily discern different pieces, but it's all meant to go together. It's all meant to be part of the whole. I'm going to move to the whole, the entirety of Ephesians 3.9. We mentioned just the very last part, but now I'm going to say the whole verse. And that I might show to every man what is the administration of the mystery, which had been hidden from ages in Eloah, who created all things. Colossians 1.25 and 26 now, again, Ephesians and Colossians, this is the Apostle Paul speaking in both, both indications, both times. Of which I am a servant, according to the administration of Eloah, which has given to me among you that I should complete the word of Eloah, the mystery that was concealed from ages and from generations, but now is revealed to his set-apart ones. So there's this mystery going on that the Apostle Paul is referencing here that has been going on for ages and generations past that Paul, as well as all of us now, we have the answer to. It was something that was hidden in Old Testament times. Now, I want to get into one of these Hebrew words. Uh, It's going to affect the next verse that I'm talking about, and it's going to be repeated from time to time as I use the Hebraic Roots version, and that word is nefesh. Uh, nefesh is a, is, a, is a pretty cool word, actually, that I found out. But the introduction in the Hebraic Roots Version says this about nefesh, quote, The Hebrew word nefesh is a very ambiguous word which simply cannot be rendered well in English. Nefesh can mean soul, life, self, 
and it often carries connotations of combinations of those meanings at the same time, unquote. So in the HRV, they decided to transliterate the word as nefesh rather than try to translate what they believed might have been a good meaning for the context at the time because if they point you towards a specific translation, that limits your understanding. They wanted you to see that this word is so much bigger than what a translation might limit it to. So when you see the word nefesh in the HRV, you can think of it as meaning everything that makes you a physical person, uh, including your intellect, your emotions, your body. Uh, again, what they said, your soul, your life, yourself. It's, it's, it's all of these things together. And I mention that because I'm going to get in. It, it's, it comes up in my next verse here, 1 Corinthians 2.14. For the Son of Man who is in the nefesh does not receive spiritual things, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to know that which is judged spiritually. Nefesh, in the NIV, instead of for the Son of Man who is in the Nefesh, the NIV translates it, if this will help, the person without the Spirit. The New King James Version says, but the natural man. So it's all pointing to the same thing. This is talking about your carnal man. This is your physical makeup. The, the physical, the mind, emotion, and the physical body that makes you up without the Spirit. We see the natural man cannot, it's impossible, he cannot comprehend spiritual things. Isaiah 11.2 says of the Spirit, and the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. Who's the him? It's Jesus. This is a prophetic chapter, or prophetic uh, utterance of Isaiah talking about the Messiah, and he's saying the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So this is the Holy Spirit that, that has all of these things. It's going to rest upon Jesus when he comes as the Messiah. But before that, nobody else had it. Think about that. Before Adam fell, he walked with God. He was perfect physically and spiritually. He communed with God directly. God, he could have intimacy with God. After Adam fell and had sin within him, God sent Adam away. Now we think of this as a punishment, which is not incorrect, but it was also for Adam's own good. Because now that mankind had sin within his spirit, God could not come into direct contact with him without destroying him and without destroying us. Until Jesus came and removed our sin, the Holy Spirit could no longer dwell within us. And as we just saw, the carnal mind cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit and the Spirit could not indwell within us. So God knew this. He knew that the Spirit of truth that teaches us everything could not connect with us it was impossible for us to understand spiritual truth. We had our minds, we had our bodies, but our spirits contained the sin that kept us separated from the one who could reveal spiritual truth to us, knowing that we were incapable of comprehending spiritual truth. A just and merciful God took only the physical manifestations of his perfect law and gave them to us as examples. They were rehearsals of spiritual realities. The physical law in its physical form was never meant to save us. It was meant to reveal the Messiah in the only way we could possibly comprehend at the time by physical example. So, feel free to jump in if you want. I'm just gonna keep going. Jesus begins to teach us this reality while, we're, while he's on the earth. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. These are the words of Jesus. Quote, You have heard that it was said, of them, said to them of old time, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that whoever sees a woman and covets her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Unquote. So that's Jesus not telling us that this is a brand new thing. 
Uh, he's, he's rewriting the scriptures. It used to be this way. He's getting rid of that. He's junking it, and he's starting something new. No, what he's telling us is that it always was that way. He's interpreting the reality that always existed. Uh, he's, he's not bringing this to the world for the first time. He's explaining that this is what always has been. Now, with the Holy Spirit given, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's gone to heaven, the Holy Spirit has come. Now John, in 1 John 3.15, uh, now who is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he writes, for everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So this is a person who has not physically committed the act, but he's broken the law. He's broken the law, thou shalt not murder, by hating someone. So again, we're getting into the spiritual realities that the physical law was meant to represent. Our physical act of disobedience does not create sin. Our physical act of disobedience reveals to the world that sin was already there. Our physical act of obedience does not create righteousness. Our physical act of obedience reveals to the world righteousness was already there by understanding this you can begin to see the old testament the way the apostle paul saw it as the holy word of god the holy perfect word of god that was hiding a spiritual mystery that the old testament people couldn't comprehend it was impossible because they didn't have the spirit indwelling them it's a it was a spiritual mystery hidden within physical confines Physical applies to physical. Spiritual applies to spiritual. It's easy for us to understand the spiritual, the, I'm sorry, it's easy for us to understand the physical things of this world because we live them every day. Brad, you wake up, you eat, you consume food, you go to work, you bathe, you interact with people, you talk, you have relationships. It's easy for us to comprehend this, is it not? We're doing it. Doing it right now. Yeah. Um, now, so if we take those physical realities that we are experiencing in our lives and we begin to see them as examples of spiritual realities, we can more easily begin to understand those spiritual realities. And that's what God was doing for us. Do not commit adultery. Does this mean we should not have sex with a person who is not our spouse? No. That's a physical example that's easy for us to comprehend. But as Jesus said himself, it means we should not hold lust in our heart towards another person. If we do, the sin has already been committed. By acting on it in the physical world, we simply reveal to the world the sin was already there. Now the Bible says we must be baptized to be saved. And I am not in disagreement with this verse. Does that mean we should dunk ourselves in water? No. That's a physical example that's easy for us to comprehend. Brad, how many times in your life have you taken a bath? About once a day for... <laughs> for how many years? It's uncountable right now. Exactly. Yeah, I was glad you didn't say, oh, about three times. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you take a bath, dirt is removed. We, we comprehend this. It's easy to get. We do it. Our parents taught us, oh, you got dirty, time to get you in the tub. And we saw the dirt being removed with the water and the soap and the washing. We need to spiritually baptize ourselves in the water of the word. That's just making me think of something. Why it might have, must have been so confusing if all they understood was the physical uh, concept of the world. Jesus mm -hmm. said you had to be reborn. Mm -hmm. How confusing would that have been? Yes. To... I can't. And this I, is why Nicodemus asked him, you telling me I have to climb back into my mother and do it again? Right. And he, Jesus was going, no, no, you're not getting it. That's an example. That's a physical example of a spiritual reality. Um, physical water does not cleanse your spirit. The physical act of baptism reveals to the world, it's a statement to the world that you wish to express that you're already clean. You've already been cleansed by the water of the word, by baptism into Jesus. Do we need to go to Jerusalem 
every year, as the Torah says, as the Torah instructs us, it commands that we do and sacrifice a perfect lamb every year for our sins in Jerusalem and the sins of the nation. No, that's a physical example that's easy for us to comprehend. The death of the physical lamb was a rehearsal. It was an easy way for us to see and comprehend the action that needed to take place for our salvation. What we have to see and come into agreement with is the spiritual truth that it was pointing us towards. Yeshua is our salvation. In fact, Yeshua, the name itself, is interpreted salvation. So it makes me wonder how many of these traditions that we have in our churches that we're just doing, but we're forgetting that they're just the physical representations of something much greater on a spiritual level. Yep. And we're just going through the motions and we're forgetting the truth behind it. Right. Now consider this. If you're out there saying right now, no, no, I, I disagree. I think we have to be baptized. I think we, uh, the Bible clearly says we shouldn't murder and we shouldn't steal and we shouldn't do these things. Um, okay, think about this. If you must obey physically any aspect of the Torah, you must obey them all. You cannot pick and choose. You're not God. The Torah says we shouldn't murder, and most people will say, yeah, yeah, God still wants us to do that. The Torah also says that if your son curses you, you are to take him before the elders who will decide if he should be stoned to death. Are we doing that? Because if you say it has to be... Uh, it has to be followed physically, then you've got to do that. We've got to understand, again, everything, everything is a physical example of a spiritual reality that at that time we had no ability to comprehend. But now that we have the Holy Spirit, the mysteries are revealed. Jesus began to reveal them himself, and he told us, it is better for you that I go away so that I send the Holy Spirit to you so that you can comprehend these things. The Spirit can indwell within us and become a part of us. And God himself is in each and every one of us. We've got to understand God is perfect and all of his ways are perfect. And he exists outside of time and everything he has ever said still applies. And then we connect that to the salvation and the cleansing of sin and spiritual reconnection that Jesus achieved at the cross and now we can begin to understand the entire Old Testament is a spiritual roadmap presented in simple physical terms to make it easy to understand for a carnal mindset. And now we can begin to reinterpret them as the spiritual laws they were always meant to rehearse. I hope that you find it is as exciting as I did knowing that the Old Testament is actually a hidden treasure map of spiritual truths. When you begin to see, you reread it and you see the physical laws, the physical things that are going on, these are rehearsals. These are examples uh, of spiritual things and you start to reinterpret them and go, so what is it telling me in my life spiritually that I've got to do? it becomes something so much more wonderful that I don't have the time to get into all of that right now, but as we start to go into Genesis, we'll start to pick those apart piece by piece. Wow. Wow. So it's amazing. It's just all amazing. And one of the problems I see with this is I see so many people talk about, uh, they, they, they look at the truths of God in the physical and they say, okay, God said I have to do that physically, and they limit themselves to the physical. But then they take something else, like the stoning your child or something, they don't kind, they, they really don't like that. And what do they do? They say, nope, nope, I'm under a law of grace. I'm not under the law. Uh, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And uh, I don't have to do that. Well, okay, but you can't pick and choose. It's all one or the other. And, and what they, they fail to comprehend is it is all one. We are under the law of grace, not under the law, but they're all, like I said, physical roadmaps, physical rehearsals to spiritual realities that we should be growing in and abiding by. And it can be dangerous to not see the spiritual side of it. I know 
uh, quite a few people who, when I ask them if they think they're a good person, they'll say, yes, I have not murdered anybody. Well, have you hated somebody? Well, yes, then you've murdered them. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not aware of their own sins. They're not mm-hmm. aware of the things that they are doing and that God and his righteousness will judge that spiritual life as well as the physical life. Yeah. And the, the, the Torah says that if you break one aspect of the law, you've broken the entire law. So think about that. If you've never murdered and if you've never hated, you ever stolen something, oh, guess what? You're a murderer. And it doesn't matter the value of what you've stolen. You yeah. take $1 or $100 out of my wallet, the value doesn't matter. You've still mm-hmm. sinned. You've still done the action, which you've means s- then you've done all the actions. Right. So... I hope that helps. I really do. I hope that helps enlighten you. I hope that helps your own Bible study. Go back, read the Old Testament, and go, wow, that means so much more to me now. Um, So I'm going to conclude with that. That brings us to the end of another podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I do hope, but we hope, Brad and I both hope, that this has been a blessing to you. This is Scott. And this is Brad. And this is Not About Us.